Today, we're going to take a deep look at the new D&D starter set, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. I'm going to talk about the new Sly Flourish bookstore, which is now open for business. We're going to talk about DM David's excellent article where he broke out monsters by function. And we're going to cover the remainder of the questions for July 2022 from the Sly Flourish patrons. All today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me put on shows like this and want to get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive source books like the City of Arches, exclusive adventures, access to a dedicated Discord channel, and a whole lot more, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link is in the show notes below. I don't know how it happened, but, well, I know, I have a wonderful wife, and my wonderful wife pre-ordered the D&D, the new D&D starter set from Target the minute we found out it was available. And it showed up a couple days early. I don't know why I was so lucky. A bunch of people are like, oh, you have secret insider stuff with Wizards of the Coast. I'm like, no, it was random luck. But in that random luck, I got a copy of the new D&D starter set, Dragon of, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. We're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about what's in it. So Dragon of Stormwreck Isle is a starter set. I believe it is the replacement for the Lost Mines of Fandelver starter set, which has been around for, I think, seven or eight years, right? It came out very quickly after the initial 5e, 5e release. So this is the first time that a new starter set has come out. But it's very easy to get this confused with the D&D Essentials Kit, another box set. So there are sort of three different D&D box sets now, two starter sets and an Essentials Kit. This one comes with the same stuff that the Lost Mine of Fandelver box set came with, which is essentially four things, a 32-page rulebook, a 48-page adventure book, a bunch of pre-generated characters, and a small set of dice. The set of dice is only six dice. It does not have a percentile die. It does not have an extra d20. Really, when you compare this to the D&D Essentials Kit is where things kind of hurt. Because if you go to Target and you look for the D&D Starter Set, you can see right here, 1999 D&D Dragon of, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle Starter Set. Really, very cool. All right, and you can order it. You can order it today. If you do D&D Essentials Kit, same store, you get the D&D Essentials Kit, which is $18.99, a dollar less. Now, granted, it's on sale. The MSRP for the starter set is $19.99. The MSRP for the Essentials Kit is $24.99, but it's on sale all the time. The Essentials Kit is on sale. It's on sale. I don't even think it's considered, I guess it's considered on sale right now, but that's pretty much the flat rate. And oh my God, you get so much more stuff with the Essentials Kit. So that that kind of hurts up front is that when you open it up, it feels light. It feels like it doesn't have all the same stuff, particularly because it costs a dollar more than the Essentials Kit costs. As a starter set, this is a far better way to get started playing D&D. For, for DMs and players who have never played before, this is probably the way to go. At this point, given that it's a full MSRP 1999, I don't think I could recommend it over the Essentials Kit, even for new DMs. I would say for a new DM, pick up the Essentials Kit, you get more dice, you get a DM screen, you get status cards, you get treasure cards, you get character generation you can make your own characters with the essentials kit you get a lot more stuff there's a map there's like a fold-out map with the essentials kit you get a lot more stuff that than you get in this for less money but when this comes down in price and it certainly will once it's available on amazon once it's you know on on once it's discounted and this is like nine to twelve dollars i've seen the starter set for as low as nine bucks this is going to be a really good deal uh one very surprising thing is that there is no connection at all in the box to 
D&D Beyond. And at first my thought was, well, that kind of makes sense because the whole merger between D&D Beyond and Wizards of the Coast didn't happen when this was getting put together. Except, again, the Essentials Kit has a card on the inside where you can get a free copy of the Essentials Kit Adventure, Dragon of Spire Peak, and D&D Beyond, and you get a discount for the player's handbook inside the same book. I don't know why they couldn't have done the same thing with this. And so not having any D&D Beyond connection actually kind of hurts. There's one bit of marketing in here where it kind of shows all the social media connections for D&D. It shows like other things you can buy, including the essentials kit, right? Continue it with the essentials kit up in the corner. And there's like a QR code Right. There's a it, it describes a link. It says visit dnd.com slash starter to find additional no QR code up here. Then there's a QR code after you play. Tell us what you think. And a great big QR code on the bottom. There's only two QR codes in this whole box. And one of them is to a survey, which doesn't help you play D&D at all. The survey is very useful for Wizards of the Coast to make products. It is not useful for a brand new player who's trying to learn how to play d and I would have put a great big QR code for the starter set in the rule book and the the 32 page rule book in the beginning is a QR code and when you when you click that one that one does go to the Wizards of the Coast when you hit the QR code in this book it takes you to this page which is a page anybody can get to right now and it's got videos for how to play it's got thoughts about how to role play and certainly they can fill this page out but otherwise it's a pretty vanilla page for D&D including having like a page that leads you to the very book you just bought I don't really need more marketing for the book I already bought. You know what I'd like? A D&D Beyond connection. I'd like a PDF of the character sheet so I can print out a new copy. And I presume like it's early. It just came out. They might put this stuff on there. Wizards of the Coast, if you're listening, I would seriously, at the very least, put up a PDF so that I can print new copies of these character sheets so that when I use these up, I have a way to get more. That would be very nice. It's really hard not to compare this to the D&D Essentials Kit. Again, it's a dollar more. So not only with the D&D Essentials Kit do you get an adventure that's actually a bigger adventure, but it also gives you access to three additional adventures that can take you up to 12th level from D&D Beyond. So when that one box set that you pick up for $18.99 comes with all that stuff, more dice, DM screen, all that stuff, it also gives you access to a first to 12th level campaign. That's as big as a Wizards hardcover book. It's a ton of material. No expansion like this. The adventure in here, it is a 48-page adventure rulebook. So it's as big as the ones that you would find with Dragon of Spire Peak or Lost Mine of Fendelver, which I believe both are also 48 pages. But it's a shorter adventure. It has four chapters. One chapter where you're sort of introduced to D&D and introduced to a quest hub. And then three sort of side adventures. Two, two adventures, two paths, two chapters that you can do in either order. You're expected to do both of them, but you can do them in whatever order you want. That's kind of a neat, a neat idea. And then a final chapter where you sort of get to the end of the, you get to the conclusion of the adventure. And it takes you through third level. So by the end of this book, you will be fourth level. In comparison, you get to up to sixth level in the adventure for the D&D Essentials Kit. The one thing that this adventure does very, very well, better than either Dragon of Spire Peak or Lost Mine of Fandelver, is it really walks through a new DM on how to play. And that's why I'm not complaining about the size of the adventure in this book. I think that it is the right size for a starter adventure. This is not something that an experienced DM that you should go run right out and buy because you're definitely gonna to wanna to run this adventure for your group. I think as an experienced DM, it'll be a lot of fun to run this adventure, but it's a relatively short adventure and there's a lot of text spent on like how to do skill checks and how to understand how to do role-playing and things like that. There's lots of different descriptive text, which Fandelver didn't have and Icespire Peak didn't have that can really walk a DM through having how to play D&D, which is very, very important. And this book does it better than everybody. The other thing that this book does, which I think is fantastic and very well needed 
needed is it doesn't kill first level characters. You will spend a lot of time at first level in this adventure. You will go through the whole introduction part, which is basically like a, a quick combat in the beginning. Maybe it's an optional quick combat in the beginning and then going to the quest hub. And then you'll do the next leg of your adventure, the next one of those two chapters. Both of those are designed for first level as well, which means you're going to do basically six to eight hours of content at first level before you get to second level. That might seem like it's taking a long time, but if again, you're playing with brand new players, it might take that much time to really understand what's going on. I think that that was a good design decision. The other thing is it has a low, it has a built-in fail safe against TPKs. If you are all wiped out, the main NPC rescues you. And it's a little ham-fisted. It's like you show back up in the temple and she's like, hey, sorry, it looked like you had trouble down there with those fungi. But you're awake. You're not dead. And the book specifically talks about not killing the characters at first level. That's way better than Fandelver where everybody got killed by the goblins in the first battle or certainly got killed by the bugbear and the wolves in the in the other cave. And Dragon of Icepire Peak where it's like you're facing ochre jellies that can hit you for 14 points of damage. Or you face a manticore that can like hit you for like 20 points of damage at first level. This one knows how to treat first level characters. It is way better than both of those in the idea that it will not wipe out first level characters. I think that's really important. I used to give, I still give a lot of crap to the starter set and the essentials kit for putting really hard high CR monsters against low level characters. Cause I'm like, what are you trying to filter people out? You're trying to make sure Wizards of the Coast doesn't have too many customers. You're going to have people get killed because they don't know what they're doing. DMs don't understand that these monsters are too hard. Why are you wiping everybody out? This one doesn't wipe them out. It's got a, not only are the monsters reasonable for first level characters. I think there's like a couple of encounters where you're like, oh, that'd be really tough. But it does some witch-like kind of things where it has non-combat options for a a lot of the battles in here lots of ways to talk to people lots of ways i think the final boss you're pretty much fighting but definitely i think handles low level characters way better than either the original lost mine of fandelver starter set or dragon of ice bar peak from the dd essentials kit so for starting dms i think this is just plain better it's just it's just plain better so here's some pictures of the actual set i i, I bought or my wife ordered two copies of it so i have two one that i'm going to keep sealed away in a vault and the other one i'm going to screw around with this is everything it comes with the character sheets the pit of marketing and the two books right very lightweight this book by the way one thing it does not have character creation guidelines it expects that you're using the pre-gen characters which again i think is a fine way to go with a starter set but again if you are interested in one that actually lets you build characters the DD essentials kit is, is a good way to go these are the two books 32 page starter book uh, bigger adventure book. All the maps in here are done by Mike Schley. Mike Schley has done all the maps for Fandelver and he did a lot of maps for other DD products. They're beautiful maps, beautiful full color maps. Really nice artwork. Now, one of the things you'll notice about the artwork is that it includes the characters from the DD cartoon. So it has this kind of fun tie to the cartoon. That is the only connection in this book to the cartoon. People are like, oh, are the characters also from the cartoon? They are not. Is any of the story involved the characters from the cartoon? It does not. It's just some of the artwork includes characters that look like they came from the cartoon. Four chapters. Dragon's Rest, where you go meet an important NPC. The Seagrow Caves, where you deal with some sentient sentient fungi. The Cursed Shipwreck, where you get to go explore an old shipwreck that's out on the, on the coast. And the final chapter, the Clifftop Observatory. This one has both Dungeons and Dragons available for your Dungeons and Dragons players to enjoy. It also has a page of optional encounters that you can drop in in different places. So, and it has good description about, hey, here, here's how you can drop these in. You'll notice that one of them includes, in fact, an owlbear. Owlbears are pretty rough, so you probably want to deal with the owlbear, but it talks about like the, the owlbear, you, you, you won't necessarily 
necessarily just go and get killed by an owlbear that you you could actually you know deal with it in ways that are not pure pure combat it has a page of magic items which you pick up and then a little monster little monster guide a bunch of different monsters in here one thing that i think is sort of an unsung feature of lost mine of fandelver the monster selection in lost mine of fandelver and the location selection in Lost Mine of Fandelver were universal enough that you could reskin Lost Mines of Fandelver and run adventures from first to fifth level hundreds of times in different varying degrees. If you look at the locations in Lost Mine of Fandelver, it's got crypts, it's got underground cellars, it's got caves, it's got ruined castles, it's got ruined towns, it's got all these different locations, very reskinnable into different places. I don't think this one is quite as reskinnable or as reflavorable. You're not going to reuse use these locations time and time again like you could with Fandelver. I don't know how many people were doing that with Fandelver anyway though. I don't know that that's a big a big loss. So there was a big question about whether or not you're going to see any new design changes in this. Is this going to be an introduction to D&D 5.5? As far as I could tell there are no major design differences between this version of the game and anything we've seen with 5th edition. When I skimmed through the rule book all the rules I saw were the standard fare. There's a couple of interesting changes with characters but nothing notable. An example is the paladins detect evil sort of aura is whenever he wants to use it. I don't even know that that's a change in the rules or how it's going to change in the new edition or anything like that. I think they just might have done that to save space. A lot of the character rules are on those pre-gen character sheets. They're not in the rule book. So I think in some cases they abbreviated things just to make it a little easier to get started with play. But I didn't see any, no new Tasha style changes. The rogue doesn't have aim, for example. There's a lot of different things that basically all of the rules are your standard D&D, D&D fare. The box, this is another little complaint I have. The box at the top says for two to five players. They're not including the GM in that two to five players. It is two to five players and a dungeon master. I had hoped that like the D&D Essentials kit is built for one-on-one -on -one play. You can have one player and one DM get together and play that game. I had hoped this one would do the same thing. It didn't. It does describe that you can have two players in a DM and both of the players will use two characters. It's intended for four to five characters. It's a pretty limited scope of how many people can play because you can always double somebody up. You can play with two, three, four, five players, but you can't play with just one player unless you're running all of them. You certainly could. And somebody could just do one-on-one -on -one D and D with a player who is playing two characters and just scope everything down. We've talked all this time on the show about reduce the number of monsters, lower the amount of hit points the monsters have, lower the damage they do, reduce their number of attacks. There's lots of ways to get this to be playable with just one player and one DM. It would have been nice if it offered more rules for how to do that, to make this book even more accessible, to make the starter set more accessible for somebody that's like, look, it's just me and my friend and we want to learn how to play D&D. So that would have been something that's nice that's not there, unfortunately. You could do it and maybe I'll put out a guide, like how to run this with one-on-one, -on -one, I think would actually be something very valuable. It uses story-based advancement. It does not use experience-based advancement. You start at first level, you go through the beginning, talk to your quest NPC, learn about the quest, go through the first quest, and at the end of that, you get to second level. Then you do the other quest, you get to take you to the third level, and then you go to the final chapter. You can do either of the two middle chapters. Chapter two and three, you can do in either order, and both are designed to be done at first level and has some design descriptions about how to increase the difficulty for second level. Both of them do that very well. Look, it was very well done. So right now it is only available in Target in the US. This is an exclusive thing that, that Wizards of the Coast has with Target. They did the same thing with Lost Mine of Fandelver. They did the same thing with the D&D Essentials Kit. A lot of people were kind of upset with the limited release scope. They're upset until it comes out in general release and then nobody ever thinks about it again. So I would not worry about it. The other thing is if you are a experienced dungeon master, if you are somebody who's into this hobby, like many of us are, if you're into the hobby as much as I am, you're really not missing that much. It's not a big deal. 
right? It is a really good starter set for a brand new DM. For experienced DMs, it's not really bringing anything other than a nice short adventure. I'm certainly not upset with the fact that I bought it and I certainly am excited to run it. Does this have anything new? Like the Essentials Kit had new stuff. The Essentials Kit had like new one-on-one -on -one rules. The adventure had a lot going on. It was a long adventure that could take you to sixth level. It had all the access to all the stuff on DD Beyond, including adventures that could take you up to fourth. So that was really a big deal. For this one, for an experienced DM, it's really not offering that much so you should not feel like you're missing out with the fact that you can only get it at target in the u.s i would not worry about it. in fact i don't know that i would buy it if i was an experienced dm unless you're really excited to go ahead and do it i am i'm excited to but like 20 bucks is 20 bucks it's going to be 12 dollars in a few months and you can get it anywhere so i would not i would not worry too much about it i think it excels at the thing it's meant to excel at I think it's very good at being a good, strong starter set for a new dungeon master, a new GM for people that are just getting into D&D. Once this hits the $9 to $12, once it's available on stores in the world, I think it's an easy recommendation. I think for a brand new player, it's an easy recommendation. I do not think this is something that every DM needs to have. I, I really don't. I think that Fandelver was a big, thick, meaty adventure with a lot of story going on, a lot of plot going on. Dragon of Icepire Peak, another great big adventure with dozens and dozens of quests that you could go on, lots of things, lots of access to continue it on to 12th level. Those were great big sort of D&D campaigns. This one is a short one. It is an introduction to D&D. It really is a starter set. You'll probably get somewhere between like eight and 16 hours of gameplay out of this. You're not gonna get these great big sessions like you could get out of Fandelver. A, it would take all... A, a, with a lot of players playing pretty slow to take 16 full hours. I think you could get through a lot of this pretty quickly. So you're not really missing that much. At $20, again, 19, if you don't have the essentials kit, I would definitely get the essentials kit before I would get this. Even as a new DM, I'd probably get the essentials kit because you just get so much more stuff for $1 less. Once this is down to a reasonable price, once you can get it for, you know, on that area between nine and $12. Again, I've seen the Lost Mine of Fandelver starter set for, I think as low as like $8 in some cases, in some sales, you could get it for eight bucks. For eight bucks, it's crazy. For 20, it's not a terrible deal. If somebody's just getting started and they spent $20 on this, it's not a big waste. I'm not saying that $20 is really expensive for this. I'm saying if you had $20, the D&D Essentials Kit gives you almost twice as much stuff, more than twice as much stuff for the same $20. That's, that's really my big statement. But I think this is a fantastic way to get started with D&D. I really like it. And you can find, I'll, I'll link to places where you can buy it in the show notes below. That is my thoughts on the D&D starter sets. Friends, the Sly Flourish bookstore is now open for business. It's actually been up and running now for a couple of months. I've, I think I've had it about three months open, but so far it's only been digital products. And now the Sly Flourish store has physical products as well. You can go to Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master in format. You can select PDF, EPUB, and hardcover, and you can order your own copy and have it sent directly to your door from the Sly Flourish bookstore. The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, and the Lazy DMs Companion all have physical versions available. You can go and you can order them. They all come with the PDF version. So if you order the physical version, Version, you automatically get the PDF and EPUB or PDF and if available an EPUB version and map packs all in one package directly from the store. Currently, we are only delivering books to the United States, Canada, the UK, 
and Germany. I am working on getting distribution to Australia. We were able to ship the Kickstarter to countries all over the world, but shipping individual products is very different from doing one big mass dropship. And I haven't figured out all of the different issues with VAT and shipping and where to warehouse stuff so that it's in the right place at the right time. I'm in the process of figuring that all out, but in the meantime, it is available only currently in those four countries. Maybe if you're seeing this later, you can always check and see if it's available in your country. I'm, I'm hoping to add in Australia and other countries in the EU pretty soon. You can also get access to all of the PDFs of all of these products as well, including all of my four other books, Fantastic Lairs, Ruins of the Grendel Root, Fantastic Adventures, and Fantastic Locations. All of these books have extensive previews. So you don't, you come to the store, you're not sure you're into my stuff. You're like, hey, I watched this video. I don't really know if I like what he's doing though. You can check out free samples. I do big free samples of stuff. You can go to Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You can say, check out the Lazy DM preview PDF. Great big PDF, 11 page PDF that covers the main bulk of the way of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Talks about the eight steps, describes the eight steps. Gives you a lot of material. Every one of my books, I give out big previews of stuff. You want to see what the Lazy DM's Companion is like? We have a 17-page free sample of the Lazy DM's Companion. This is the book that I wrote last year. It's been just delivered. Now, lots of stuff here that you can use right away, even from the free sample. All my samples are usable. You can grab it. You can use it at your game today. You like it, go buy the book. That's that's the intent. Fantastic Layers, the book that I worked on with Scott Fitzgerald Gray and James Castle. You can pick that up. Again, two free sample layers available, 17-page preview, two layers that you can use at your game right now. Same thing for every every one of these books. All has free samples. Ruins of the Grendel Root has first level free first level adventure. You want to play a first level adventure? Here you go. Good starter adventure. Talks about the city, talks about everything you get in the book. Nice maps, good artwork, everything that you need to run it. I also have on here a free player character pack. This is a 70 page, 69 page character portfolio. This includes pre-gen characters for every one of the characters. It's designed to be printed front and back in a big packet. It has characters for all of the classes in fifth edition, designed so that you can level them all the way up to fifth level directly on the sheet. You can take them from first to fifth level directly on the sheet. And it includes spell descriptions. So the spells that you pick up, you don't have to have another book. You don't have to have a player's handbook. You have a new player that's coming. They want to play a bard. Given this sheet, they have everything they need in order to play a bard, including all the spell descriptions. All of that is here. That's free. Everybody can have it. Go get it. Go get it right now. Use it. I want you to use it. I want you to enjoy it. We have all that stuff. All of that is available right here in the Sly Flourish bookstore. I hope you check it out. If you do and you want to help me out, pick up a book. My friend, David Hartledge, who goes by DM David, wrote a really, really good article. The kind of article you're like, man, I wish I wrote that. Every so often, a lot of times at DM David, I see an article, I'm like, boy, I wish I wrote that. Really good idea. So there's always been a thought about roles, monster roles. This is something that fourth edition had codified into the rules. You had soldiers and brutes and artillery and controllers, and you knew like which monster did what kind of thing. What David did is he wrote out a list of the different types of monsters. His list comes from the monster manual and monsters of the multiverse. And he broke them down into agents, creatures that deliver messages for people, ambushers, ones that will surprise you, bodyguards, protectors of others, collectors of secrets and lore, different creatures that kind of grab things, commanders, ones that will command other groups, controllers, ones that sort of control the environment, enforcers, not exactly sure what the difference is, like an enforcer and a bodyguard, but enforcers, monsters that go and hit you really hard, friends, guides, and patrons, things that might be friendly to the characters, guards, lots of guards, things that would guard a location, haunts and corruptions, 
Impersonators, masterminds and arch villains, mounts, protectors of nature, soldiers, spies and assassins, support soldiers, stalkers, story creatures, subterranean threats, undying threats, urban threats, wandering or hunting threats, wild threats, creatures that cause cataclysms, I love that one, tricksters and troublemakers. This is a fantastic way to think about the role that monsters play, not even just in combat. One of my arguments with fourth edition is it was a little bit paint by numbers. And it was like, oh, I should have a controller plus some brutes or controllers plus some soldiers and everything like that. And it built these sort of like cookie cutter battles, which some people really liked. They were happy having that. I used it for a long time when I was doing fourth edition. But I also think like I want sort of more organic. I want monsters that make sense from a story perspective. What I love about what David did here is this is not all about combat. This is about the role that a character or that a monster plays in a game. And it's not just combat agents and ambushers agent, you know, protectors. These are, these are roles that they would fulfill in the story. I think it's really fantastic. This is a great article. This is the kind of thing you want to bookmark. You probably want to print it out, format it for a paper, stick it in your monster manual, keep a copy of this. Cause it's a really, really handy way to look at monsters. I hope wizards of the coast took note of this. Cause I think having a role like this, added to monsters would be a really big improvement. Again, from a story perspective, not just like how it plays in battle, but how it actually functions in the game. David, thank you for doing that. It, it is awesome. Last week, I did a review, the kind of a very top level spotlight of the, the, the Journeys to the Radiant Citadel adventure book that Wizards of the Coast just put out. And I really love this book. I saw a review on N-World that goes into much more depth over this book than I did. And so my thought was, if you really want to read a deeper review that really gets into the book where somebody took a lot more care diving into it, I would highly recommend taking a look at this. It describes every one of the adventures that's in there and what's going on. Lots of pictures of art. It's a really, really excellent review. I just wanted to mention it because I had done the spotlight last week and I thought this probably does this does more service to reviewing the book and giving you an impression of what you're going to get than what I did in that spotlight. So take a look at that. Now we're going to go through the remainder of the questions for the Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A for July. Philip J says, banning has come up in chat in your streams from time to time. What things would you ban and why? What goes into the decision as a DM that really tells you I need to ban this or else to improve X? How how has it these broken insert how have these sort of broken insert spell item or build broken your games as examples? I'm actually going to combine this with the next question. In the process of watching your most recent talk show, you struck on the idea that maybe it's time for DMs to start limiting race, subclass, and even spell choices. How might you approach a situation where you decide to choose a focused group of races in one geographic region that a campaign either focuses on exclusively or predominantly? I don't think of it as banning. First of all, I would expect most DMs either are banning something or would ban things depending on what their players brought to the table. I seriously doubt every DM is like, sure, you read some interesting subclass idea that somebody posted on Reddit, go ahead and bring it to my table. I, I kind of doubt DMs would want that. Every D&D wiki subclass that anybody has ever designed, you're allowing it your game. I kind of doubt it. And if you're limiting it, most of the time when I hear ban, what I expect people say are, you're cutting things out that Wizards of the Coast has published. When, when people talk about banning, what they're saying is, hey, I have this thing in D&D Beyond and you're not letting me use it in D&D Beyond, which really means you're limiting things to just what Wizards of the Coast produces. But that limits all of the third party stuff that is really good. And my recommendation, what, I try, what I'm trying now in particular, and what I would recommend is, 
allow certain things, allow things that fit the theme of the adventure. So then that gets into to, to, to Lyle's question of limiting races and stuff like that. I think there's probably two reasons we would limit content in our game. The first reason is when it doesn't fit the story of the game we're trying to tell. I think there are certain subclasses, there are certain races that make sense particularly for a certain theme of a campaign and then certain ones that don't. I think it's certainly within a DM's prerogative to say these are a list of races that make sense for this game world. These are a list of subclasses that make sense. The example is I'm going to be running Empire of the Ghouls for my Wednesday game. We're going to have our session zero next week. And I said the player's handbook is allowed. The Midgard Heroes book is allowed and Tome of Heroes is allowed. So those are two Cobalt Press books and the player's handbook, which is as much material as Xanathar's and Tasha's also includes. But people would say, like, why aren't you including Tasha's and Xanathar's? And part of my reason is I want to try this other stuff. I want to see, I want to help my players try this other stuff. Now, it's a little weird because that stuff isn't in D&D Beyond. So we have to make that choice about how we're going to do stuff that's not in D&D Beyond. But most of the time I expect I'm not banning things. I'm limiting the source content because there's so much material in the world. I've got to limit it somehow, right? If you're going to play Drakenheim, just use the Drakenheim player's book and the player's handbook. Right? Makes sense. Now, there's another reason, other than thematic, other than selecting a set that kind of fits the theme of the campaign I want to tell. There's also what kind of stuff disrupts the game. We might think that like, oh, I want the game to play a certain way and this sort of thing hurts the game. It's actually when it removes uncertainty that I really get bothered. But in particular, things that disrupt the game. And the big example I'll use is the conjure woodland beings, right? The giving one character the ability to summon eight wolves. And then on their turn, they have to control eight wolves, move them around, set their position, have them attack. Some have pack tactics, some don't. Some are knocking somebody down, some aren't. They're all over the place. Why would you give any player nine turns, right? Like what a way to slow a game down. So in that case, the new spell from Tasha's is way better than the spell that's in the player's handbook. So that's one where I'm like, use the Tasha spell instead. I don't really have it as like a standing house rule, but if a player starts to take it, I'll say, hey, can you switch to that other one? We only have one monster instead of nine or eight, because that's ridiculous. So when I see something that disrupts the game, I pick on Twilight Cleric a lot. And the reason I pick on Twilight Cleric is because I ran with Twilight Cleric. And as a DM for challenging battles, I had to change the nature of the battle completely to deal with the fact that the characters are getting essentially healed. Everybody was getting essentially healed for like eight to 12 hit points every round automatically. It also disrupted the game because you had to choose to do it at the beginning of every character's turn as another action that isn't called out. It's not a free action. It's not a reaction. It's this like, unspoken action where at the beginning of their turn we always had to remind them hey make sure to take your temporary hit points hey make sure to take your temporary hit points hey make every turn it was bananas it took long time it was hard even the player who i was working on was like yeah this is pretty outrageous when i see stuff that disrupts the flow of the game that's something where i'm going to take a hard look at it but a lot of times i try to like let it run for a while and see how it goes and then i have an adult conversation so those are really the reasons why i decide if something is if i'm going to limit stuff or not and again, the, like every book you read says the DM has prerogative on what to include and what not to. If you read the beginning of Tasha's and beginning of Xanathar's and none of it says this is now core rules and DMs have to use it. And if you don't, you're, you're a dick. They don't say that. They say you get the choice and I'm making that choice. The two reasons why I would limit content. One is I limit it for a creative reason, which is to kind of steer a campaign to, towards a certain feel and have characters that fit that, that the theme of that campaign, thus limiting either races or subclass options and stuff like that. The other reason would be, are there... Are there things that disrupt the game? Are there components? Are there new things in here that are disrupting the game that are making it harder for me to run the game? Because let's be honest, I'm, I, I want my life to be easy and put stuff in that's hard for me. That's bad. Any of the things that like make the DM change the, 
path or the control of the game. Anything where it's like, oh, now that monster can't do this thing that it would normally do. It has to do this other thing. That's disruptive. And I'm a little worried that I'm seeing more of that stuff in Tasha's and I hope not to see as much in 5.5. Players love it until they don't. They love it until the point where the DM is like, okay, this is boring. I'm just going to run the same battle every time because I don't want to go through all this work. And you, all you do is polymorph into a giant ape every battle. So yeah, you win, right? Like they don't want to play that. Things that are disruptive to the game, that disrupt the flow of the game, things that remove uncertainty. Like if, oh, we do this three thing combo that automatically wipes out any single creature. Guess what? Nobody likes that. The players aren't going to like it if they just do the same thing every time, right? Those are some things where I might go, okay, we're going to change the rules on that. Zeke says, my party loves dragging unsuspecting NPCs along with them on adventures. So I was wondering if you have any lazy DM tips for running NPCs that join a normal sized party. Yes, don't. Try to get them in and out as fast as you can. There's a, a few things you can do. One is make them non-combatants. Give them some reason why they won't fight in combat because you don't want to have some NPC that's always battling. If you do, let one of the players handle them give an abbreviated stat sheet to that player to handle. The, the adventure that's notorious for this is Tomb of Annihilation. Out of the Abyss is also pretty bad, where they give you lots and lots of NPCs. And in Tomb of Annihilation, sometimes they are way better than the characters are. That's terrible, right? Don't do that. The kind of NPCs that I love as tagalongs are intelligent magic items. Intelligent mag magic items are just as interesting from a character perspective. Only the player gets to use the intelligent magic item to hit monsters. The main reason I don't like tagalong NPCs is that they take up the spotlight off the character. Get them in, get them out. Make them non-combatants and use intelligent magic items instead. Walt W., do you have a sweet spot for how many unique monsters, types of monsters you like to run in a single encounter? Yes, no more than three different types. D&D Beyond with the D&D Encounter Builder can theoretically let you run more than that pretty well. So you can, with the, with the, with, if you have an Encounter Builder that has the stat blocks, we just click it and open it, it has the hit points tracked. But generally, three is probably as many as you want to do. And I would not be opposed to having just one. Here's a trick. You can reflavor the monsters. So you could have four veterans attacking the characters, but one's a dwarf, one's an elf, one's an, a half orc, and one's, you know, and one's a human, right? And give them all sorts of different characteristics and use the same stat block. You can even just say, yeah, that long sword, it's actually an ax attack, right? Or he's attacking with two axes in his hands. Change the flavor, but use the same stat block. It's a really easy trick to make it look like they're fighting a wide variety of different monsters, but really they're all just fighting the same one. So that 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 is a way. But generally, I would not have more than three different stat blocks unless you have a tool like the Encounter Builder from D&D Beyond, which is a really good tool that lets you run multiple monsters and it's not any harder. Siren L says, what would you what do you do when your characters catch on too quickly to a film homage inspired encounter that was supposed to be surprising? I bet you they're not going to get it. I bet you if you change it just slightly enough it's not likely that they're going to realize that you took the House of Blue Leaves scene from Kill Bill. Or you took, I think in your case, in your in your full post, you had mentioned that you wanted to have the characters go into a vampire bar, just like in From Dusk Till Dawn. I bet you they're not going to pick up on it. Most of the time, we think that our thing is obvious. There's actually good scientific research about this. The thing that we think is obvious to other people is not obvious to them. So generally, I wouldn't worry about it. If they do, just roll with it. Just be like, yep, kind of like that, right? Don't worry about it too much. Life's hard enough, right? And and the idea that you have to change things to make sure they don't they don't pick it up, they're not gonna they're they're probably not gonna pick it up. They're probably not gonna get it. If you want to do it, just change and reskin a few things. Is it is it vampires? What if it's sentient ghouls? Right? What if there's some other angle? What if it's actually spectral people? Like change it just slightly, and it will be enough. It'll be far enough away. Same with an NPC. If you pulled an NPC from popular fiction and you're like, it's just like 
you know, Tommy, Thomas Shelby from Peaky Blinders. Just make it a woman. Switch, switch the gender, right? Switch the gender of it and nobody will ever realize that you're using the same character. Knights of Roleplay says, I've started writing my first homebrew campaign setting. Since I started writing, I found more than one of my ideas that I thought were original actually appeared in numerous existing campaign source books. I don't want to be accused of, of being un, unoriginal or stealing. Should I discard my ideas, maybe rename them, or should I just not worry about it? It depends if it, you're saying a homebrew campaign setting. If this is really a homebrew setting, if you're just using this for the home game, you should feel free to steal all the time. Like, just steal directly don't you don't have to reflavor anything you should never feel like your idea if you're taking you just saw me if you watch my numenera show i just grabbed the city that was right in one of the books i'm plopping it right in my city barely changing anything at all that's what it's for i can tell you as a designer who makes this kind of stuff i want you to steal as much or as little as you want if you want the whole thing to plop in just go if you want to just grab pieces just go use your creativity where you want to use it don't worry about using it to to not plagiarize especially if you're uh, on the assumption that you're doing a homebrew campaign it's not plagiarism if you're not publishing it if you're making a published campaign setting you have to be a lot more careful you don't want to you want to be original just from a marketing perspective you want something that they can't buy elsewhere but also yeah, obviously plagiarism for publishing is really bad so obviously don't do that but for a home game man do not worry about it take take whatever you want take it as it is, modify it however you want and use it. I Almost every designer, I think pretty much every designer I've ever talked to about this topic has said that's what they want. Wolfgang Bauer, who made Midgard, I asked them this question. I said, what is your number one goal for Midgard? And he said, my goal is for DMs to take it and shred it and use the parts that they want to use in their campaigns however they want to use it. It's Wolfgang Bauer. He's been working in D&D for like 30 years. That's where to go so do not worry you will not be accused of being unoriginal most of your players are not going to know what you're stealing from and if they do you know hell with them jason k says i have the hardest time creating situations rather than scenes this is something i feel very strongly about could you share a checklist of points that a situation should address to help me stay on track in your prep? Here's a quick checklist. This isn't perfect, but it's a quick checklist that you could think about how to build a situation instead of a scene. And I think about this often from like also building a heist. A heist is just a situation, right? So you, can, you build the situation this way. A situation has a location. What is this location like? I like to give it multiple entrances, multiple paths, loopbacks, and secret paths. Those are known as jQuays style dungeons, right? Dungeons where you have multiple ways in, you have multiple paths you can take, you have loopbacks, you have secret paths, secret passages, add all that stuff up. You want a location like that, go to DysonLogos.com or DysonLogos.blog, I think it is. Look up Dyson Logos maps and all of his maps are built like this. But have a good location with options for the characters. You have inhabitants. Who's there? Are there? Is there a mix of unintelligent and intelligent monsters? It's something I really like to do. I like to have like intelligent monsters are over here and unintelligent monsters are over here and the players know it and they know which direction they're going to go and they can kind of choose which way they want to go. Behaviors, those inhabitants, what are they doing when they're there when the characters aren't around? Do the guards walk around a certain area? Do they wall off the section with the unintelligent monsters so that they don't worry about them? Do the intelligent monsters wander away and sometimes come back? What is their behavior when the characters aren't there? right? That, that helps. You need a goal. Why are the characters going to this place? Are they stealing something? Are they going to pick up a piece of treasure? Are they going to kill a big nasty boss? Are they going to rescue a prisoner? Why are they going to this location? And you want to make sure that's clear. And you're going to want to reinforce that a lot of times. Make sure it's very clear to the players why they're going to this location. And then you can have a complication. What's something that would occur an external event? This can often be a strong start. If you're starting your session in the middle of a place, 
what is an external event that can occur that can shake this place up? This in a heist, this is in particular, like the bad guy comes back into town, an earthquake occurs, something gets set on fire. What's some event that occurs while they're there that changes the dynamic? So even if they know we have intelligent monsters here, unintelligent monsters here, I've got a map. I know what my goal is. They have all this stuff, but something changes. Half of it collapses and they have to pick a different, a different entrance. What's the complication? That complication one's kind of optional. You don't need it. Sometimes it could just be having monsters wander by that they didn't expect. But really, that's a situation. You have your location, inhabitants, behavior, a goal, and maybe some complications. Dr. Fugue says, it occurred to me when listening to the short video about prep you posted today that the lazy GM method sort of involves the use of quantum ogres. What do you think about their use? Quantum, the, the, the term quantum ogre, I've only started hearing it recently. I heard it on a Reddit post. And the idea behind the quantum ogre is that whatever direction the players take, they're gonna face an ogre. You have three different paths. They go out of their town. There's three different paths. There's the well-trod path. There's the rocky path through the woods. And there's the mountain path. And you're like, oh, which one do you choose? And like, I think we're going to go the mountain path. Like, you go down the mountain path, he comes out, an ogre is in front of you. And it turns out the ogre was in any one of the places. Whatever direction they go, the ogre is there. That's the idea of the quantum ogre. The ogre exists no matter what direction or path you take. Some people take that as like, that's really lazy, but it also works and works really well. You could change that ogre, right? You could say like, why is the ogre in the middle of the road in a well well-trod rogue, well-trod road might be he attacked a caravan and took over a caravan. In the mountains, maybe he's just by himself. Maybe in the woods, he's fighting some other monster. You can change the circumstances because of the location and still use an ogre. Is that, does that work for the lazy DM method? Absolutely. I, I, some people use it as a pejorative. Some people use quantum ogre as a pejorative. You're just making things up. Yeah, it's D&D. That's what we do. We make things up. An area, certainly an area where there's like a quantum idea in the Lazy DM style is in Secrets and Clues. Secrets and Clues are specifically designed not to be tied to a specific circumstance in the game. Instead, the DM drops in those Secrets and Clues where they make sense given what's happening in the game. That's a really, really powerful difference between secrets and clues and other other ways of sort of tying things if you look at wizards of the coast books they often say this npc knows these five things but that means if you don't see that npc you won't learn those five things secrets and clues says you'll learn them you just might learn them some other way we don't we don't know how maybe an intelligent sword tells it to you maybe you dream it while you're taking a rest maybe it's a, you wipe you, you break down the rocky wall and find out there's a mosaic behind the wall that's teaching you something there's all these different ways that you could learn it that is a quantum idea Boy, it works really well. So the idea of the quantum ogre being a pejorative or being a, being a negative, I don't see it. I think it's I think it works fine. If it's not for you, it's not for you. I'm not going to argue with you. If you like it the way you're doing it, great. Go with the gods. I know this is the way that I like it. I know a lot of people that do it this way, and it, it can work really well. And it means you can prep a lot less stuff and run a more dynamic game. That's been my experience. Oliver W., where would you put Wild Beyond the Witchlight in your list of the video ranking Watsi's D&D published campaigns? I did. I just finished Wild Beyond the Witchlight last week. I finally finished the campaign. I'm going to talk about it either on the next talk show or I'm going to do a separate video. But the specific answer to this question is I think it's probably the second or third best adventure. It's right by Curse of Strahd. It is really, really excellent. I really loved it. And I would put it definitely high at the list. It's hard to say like Ghost of Saltmarsh and this are pretty similar, but I would say it's better than Tomb of Annihilation, right? I liked it better than Tomb of Annihilation. I like, but I, and I love Tomb of Annihilation, <clears throat> but I would say that it's probably second or third next to Ghost of Saltmarsh. Curse of Strahd is my favorite one of the hardbacks. I'm not talking about the starter set adventures, right? Of the hardback adventures, Curse of Strahd is still my favorite. And I still like Curse of Strahd a lot. I love that adventure a lot. And then this one and Ghost of Saltmarsh are right even with each other. You could argue either way, right? They're right even with each other. So I really like it a lot. 
Kevin B says, do you have any advice for wrapping up situations where PCs are done with an NPC? This is a good question. Done with an NPC prisoner. My group loves taking prisoners and there's always seems to be this awkward moment after they learned what they learned. The only option seems to be murdering them or letting them go. I've tried a sudden rescue attempt by the prisoner's allies, but you can only do that so many times. I, I guess this is why so many spies in old movies have suicide pills. Any ideas on how to make this situation interesting? Yeah, it's a problem. And and I would I would definitely lean towards mercy right i would i would make it more palatable for the characters to give mercy than murder so and there's a couple ways you could do that one is that you you have them switch sides right you have them say like look you know i mean this is a good moment of interaction what i would not do there's there's a big not doing this i would not have them release the prisoner and it works against them I, you know, only if you really made it clear that they should have wiped the guy out and there's a good reason to wipe him out, you know, that isn't just murdering the dude. I would not have a comeback and bite them because it is, is that, is that more likely? Probably. But what that leads to is now you're just going to have them murdering every NPC that they ever talk to. And that, that leads to, you know, evil characters. And maybe that's fine for your group. That's great. I don't want evil characters. I, I want them. I want them to be good people. And that means murder is not the right answer. So I often give them an approach. What does the NPC want besides living? What does the NPC want? But I often do like, oh, no, they'll go become a farmer. And they actually will become a farmer. Right. Or they will switch sides. And like, hey, I can work with you. I can be paid off. Now, if you have like the evil cultist whose whole goal was to like raise this demon up and they capture him. You know, then you can do like supernatural stuff. Like he just screams out and his body turns to ash, right? You can have like another entity kills them, right? Or the, the, the equivalent of the suicide pill, the gods just suck the life out of them or they kill themselves. You could have all these other options about why they remove themselves from it. That could be either external, maybe like an arrow comes out and hits him from the woods, right? Now, who's that? And then, but then you have chase scenes and everything like that. But the main thing I would do is lean towards mercy, like lean towards mercy being the right option. We can, we can be idealistic in our RPGs and we can say like, oh, it's far more realistic that this guy would go back to the bad guys and tell him. I did do that. I did do that from time to time. There are certain monsters where you want to do that. You know, there's certain monsters and certain enemies where you want them to, oh, no, I'll totally be on your side. I'll totally do what you want. And then later they're like, I totally got it. So I had like a kobold vampire that did that. Where they, I think they, was a kobold vampire. They had like a kobold vampire that, that begged for mercy and they let it go. Oh, I'll be good. And then immediately went and told the bad guy. And they're like, oh, that's it. You're done this time. Like, that was a different circumstance. So I would not make that the norm. I would make that specific and, and for fun reasons. Matthew T says, I am running a one-shot game at my local game store. And I've been asked to create pre-gen characters for potential new and or unprepared players. Love Level three, how would you design characters to fit for a specific game that are flavorful yet simple? I would do two things. One is I would use the Sly Flourish. If you go to shop, go to shop.slyflourish.com. Go to either Ruins of the Grendel Root or Fantastic Adventures. We'll go to Ruins of the Grendel Root. In the Ruins of the Grendel Root page is a free player character pack right here. 70 pages. I just talked about this earlier in the show. 70 page character pack that has characters, all 12, 12, I think, right? Every character class is here and they are leveled. You can level them from first to fifth level right on the sheet. It has all the material you need. I would use this. I think they are the best pre-gen characters I've ever seen, you know, because I did them, but I worked really hard to make their make. I worked really hard and other people, James Turner Castle worked on these. Eric Nowak worked on these. We had a bunch of people that spent a fair amount of time getting these uh, in, a, in a right spot. I think they're excellent, excellent pre-gen characters. So first, I would use these. Second, what I would do is write, get out some three by five cards, get out some index cards. And write out like one plot point that ties to the adventure. 
write out a number of these and hand them out during the game. Like when you're signing out, you know, they can either pull one randomly or you could say, these are options. Which one of these do you want that, that tie their character to the campaign? And it could be one sentence. It could be, you know, the main villain is my estranged uncle, right? Or I have an uncle, so-and-so who I've lost truck, touch with it. Turns out that the main villain or, you know, the quest, the quest guy is my, is, is a brother of mine, right? You can have just a, a, just one, you know, write one connection. And the interesting thing about writing those connections in like an index card is they're not tied to class or race or anything like that. Keep them abstract from what character, what the rest of the character is like so that any of the players can tie this hook to any of the characters that they decide to choose. It's a really modular approach. It's very easy to do. Just write out, like, look at your adventure, look at where it's going, look at the major NPCs and say, here are all of these different potential ties that a character could have to one of these NPCs. And then ha either, either they could just pull one randomly or you can put them all out on the table and let people pick which one makes sense for their character. I think that's a really, a really good way to go. Friends, that is it for today's Lazy DD Talk Show. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today while we talked about all of this stuff. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get a free adventure generator PDF plus a new Sly Flourish article sent to your inbox every week. You can support me directly on Patreon where you get exclusive access to things like the City of Arches, the campaign source book, early previews of things that I'm working on, exclusive adventures that I've written, access to a Discord channel, and a whole lot more. You can pick up any of my books on the, on the Sly Flourish bookstore. The link is down in the show notes below, including physical copies of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's workbook, and the Lazy DM's companion. And you can help, you can subscribe to my videos right here on YouTube. You can share this video or this podcast with your friends. You can share it on social media. You can let other people know about the work that I do. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D. &D.